smart to be a pop star, not smart enough not to be. Hello and welcome to the New Ears Podcast, an auditory exploration of the art of the album. I'm your host, Jonathan Humphrey. Today we're going to be starting the first in an ongoing series on this podcast, delving into the discography of Joan of Arc. We're going to be doing it chronologically, so that means this week we're going to be talking about their album A Portable Model Of. It was released June 6, 1997. The formation of Joan of Arc happened after the band Captain Jazz broke up, and they were trying to distance themselves from the music they had been making. Members of the band at this time were Tim Kinsella, Jeremy Boyle, Eric Bosek, Sam Zurich, and Mike Kinsella. They also had quite a few guest musicians appear as well. My guest today is a writer, editor, and musician, my good friend and frequent collaborator, Raul Clement. We hope you enjoy this conversation. I'm sitting here with Raul Clement, and we're, we're getting ready to discuss A Portable Model of by Joan of Arc. Raul, recommendations, plugs soapbox have, have a couple minutes for whatever you want to say not pertaining to this this album i've got nothing now it was funny i listened back to the how this how memory works podcast and i was plugging my novel which had just come out well now that novel's been out for five years so i don't really think i need to plug it at this point if you haven't gotten it already you're probably not i think if if you haven't gotten it already you may want to it's still worth the read five years later yeah it's generally pretty cheap on uh most of your online booksellers and there's a kindle edition too if you prefer that but yeah it's called the doors you mark are your own sequel slash third installment or maybe eventually coming if i ever get around to it but it's been a long complicated story so we won't get into that but well and we we hint at it and so for anyone listening we recorded the how did this get how did how memory works episode several years ago as you mentioned but it will be played after this one so we mentioned some other things in that and uh there's a possibility other stuff will be coming and and we'll try to keep you posted if that happens so i guess we can just get right into it a portable model of what what were your initial thoughts so it's been a while obviously like i said since we recorded the other podcast so it was sort of, it's hard for me to make a direct comparison or connect the albums, but I did do a little research and do how they're connected. Um, but even knowing that connection, it seems like this album is a little more, and maybe it's because it's Joan of Arc's first album, but it's a little less focused or something. Yeah. I don't know the word you would use for it, but maybe it's, it's that there's more sections of kind of just ambient noise it felt like. Maybe it's that, I, I don't know exactly what caused that impression in me, but um, it definitely felt like How Memory Works was a more realized album of, you know, Joan of Arc's sound, which makes sense because when you're starting a band, you don't always know exactly what you want to do right away. Right. And on top of that, I think it's important to note that Joan of Arc came about after Captain Jazz broke up. Captain Jazz, Tim started with his high school friends in high school. So before this, he'd primarily played emo or whatever, but a subgenre of punk music. So not that there isn't punk influences on this album, but it's a really big departure still from 
playing that kind of music. Right. I read a quote by him that when he formed Joan of Arc, he was trying to get out of that kind of emo scene. But it's funny to me because I could still see this being classified as emo in a way, just because of some stuff about the singing style and a little bit with the lyrics and stuff too. It's definitely much more avant-garde than emo. But yeah, the, the punk influence that Captain Jazz has is definitely in the background, I think. You know, it's not it's not prevalent in the same way. Right. And I feel like in a lot of ways. So I actually I wanted to read some of this later and I'll read I'll get more into it by the end of the show. But on Vice, there is a thing where Tim Kinsella ranked most of the records of Joan of Arc. And I'm pulling it up. He what he said about this album, I think we'll go ahead and say the rank now. and I might say more for later. He ranked this number five of the Joan of Arc albums he talked about. And I think part of that is just the joy in learning to be experimental right he mentions that there's times where there was just him and uh jeremy and they're they're really just in a room with an acoustic guitar and two like transistor radios and they're like putting an effectron on the, the radios and turning them and just trying to get sounds from them and tim said that just felt so liberating it was just this beautiful moment of discovery in my mind like i said it's one thing to go from a shy kid who wants to scream to suddenly being encouraged to scream but it's another thing to be like i can actually express myself and it turns out that the things i want to express don't fit so neatly into this genre but that's okay there was a lot of creative permission yeah i can see that that was one of the main things i was going to talk about with this album was all the sounds and textures and what they were using to achieve that because you know this was recorded what year was it 97 or something in 96 or 97 so not that you know not that you couldn't have sound effects back then of course you could but it wasn't quite as easy as now where you plug a midi keyboard into a computer and you just press the keyboard keys and you can kind of pick out from like my midi keyboard has 10,000 sounds or something i don't i don't even know so yeah like you had to be a little bit more innovative i remember when my band in high school was recording around the same time and we had this concept of we're going to make this album about the album was called the year on the face of the earth so we were going to like we're going to have random noises from different places in the background of each song and we didn't end up doing this because we realized it just like was taking away from the songs because our songs weren't you know they were a little more straightforward than these so you couldn't have the same kind but the way we had to do it was we like literally gave the sound guy um, not the sound guy the recording engineer a cd and we were like take this track and put it behind our tracks right uh -huh. so that was you know you had to get a little bit more innovative like that and it sounds like when uh talking about uh using transistor radios and stuff like that uh, there was a bunch of sounds on here i was really curious about how they even achieved them or what they were you know they're really cool sounds like that bouncy sound in uh, the song the hands you know what i'm talking about yeah the boing yeah, exactly. yeah one thing i want to point out and it, who knows so this is also something that tim said in that uh the conversation with vice apparently in every single joan of arc record at some point in time this very same broken vacuum is used as an instrument and not necessarily in the same way every time right but it'd be interesting to see where people think that broken vacuum as an instrument is yeah i would I have no guess. I would have to listen back, paying attention for that, you know, which you you may have done. So um, you probably have a better guess than I do. I mean, there's so many sounds on this album. There are lots of places where it could be, honestly. Right. 
What about that weird, this doesn't really sound like a broken vacuum, but what about that weird swelling sound in an aviary? So you have the bird chirping and then you have the part in the middle where the stuff drops out and it just becomes completely ambient. And you've got that kind of almost grating, swelling noise. It sounds a little bit like an organ, but it's kind of more piercing. It could be that. So we'll get more into that on the tracks, but either either alone or as, with the follow-up, what do you feel like the title of this album means? Well, one thing I thought of was you have a few songs that invoke a location in Pompeii and in Pamplona. And then you have, uh, what's the song that talks about foggy Pennsylvania? Let's wrestle. Yeah, yeah. So you have a lot of songs kind of like, not a lot maybe, but that sort of invoke a location. In a way, a portable model of is kind of like this thing you can take with you wherever you go that'll guide you. You know what I'm saying? That's actually even better than anything I thought. For some reason, this is more of a like, association kind of thing and not like i have these transparent thoughts but when i'm like sit there and really reflected on the idea of a portable model of and in a lot of ways it goes with what you're saying i really hearken back to the the short story collection the things they carried right but so it is kind of like that the what you're taking with you right but the interesting thing though is that it takes a completely different meaning if you tie it in with the next album's name you know like the liner notes do right a portable model of how memory works it becomes a more intricate idea than if it's just a standalone phrase. Right. And I think that's part of the beauty of it is that I think you can't, you're supposed to take it both ways. Mm -hmm. It's funny that you say location because one of the things that just really, I really feel listening to this album and I always have is distance. I feel distance in this album. It's the, the sparse instrumentation and the dwindling guitars just creates this feeling of, of lengths. I don't know if you got that from it. Do you mean the songs feel distant or do you mean like, do you mean it some other way? I mean, I do feel like the songs feel distance and I feel like the sound of the album just is trying to convey a feeling of distance. Okay. Yeah. That kind of makes sense. I got a kind of um, nostalgic feeling almost a little bit with, um, certain songs um the song you know mentions uh, that we were just talking about mentions foggy pennsylvania cotton brown october i think that's what he said mm -hmm. i don't really understand that phrase but it's cool but it gives you this kind of like almost wistful looking back feeling that could kind of tie into a feeling of distance like you have literal physical distance but you also have like time i got a little bit of that feeling of temporal distance you know just like I don't know whether you want to call it nostalgia or not, but, you know, whatever you want to call that feeling. Yeah. Well, well what else did, did you get as the theme or the concept of this album? If it is a concept. I don't know if it's necessarily a concept as much as a theme or vice versa. It was hard for me to necessarily pick up on an overarching theme, but I did notice plenty of repetitions. And that's not a theme in itself. It's just like those are things that tie an album together, right? Mm-hmm whether it's like in Pompeii and in P Pamplona, like having almost the same song name and then also they're almost the same track. Right. You know what I mean? They both have that weird kind of almost, it sounds like tribal drumming that's going on. Right. And and it's obviously it starts and ends with a repetition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. You have the, that, I, I have that down here too in my notes, uh, the, the kind of book ending song, which is it's not quite the same track, right? Because it's like one's a little bit longer than the other. This, the second one is... Well, it's funny because the first version, I love a woman parenthetical who loves me. The lyrics are actually much longer, but the song itself is shorter. And then at the end, 
the lyrics are very short, but the music's a lot longer. Right. So you have that repetition, then you have the other one I mentioned, and then you have just a few other little things in how Wheeling feels and the hands. They they both mention Christmas. Yeah, that's in my notes. Maybe why I'm getting uh, the nostalgia feeling too, because Christmas is such a sort of childhood thing, you know? Now, these are like, at least one of them is a kind of dark representation of Christmas, setting a Christmas tree on fire, right? Right. Um, so there, there's there's one. And then uh, some sound repetitions. Like I already mentioned the, the drumming in those two songs, but also there are a lot of like just similar sounds throughout. You have a lot of sounds that almost sound like a, not like a fax machine or like a phone ringing, but something in that kind of vein. Right. You have one in the first song, and then well, how Wheeling feels is the the phone, right? And we'll talk we'll talk more about that when we get to the actual track. But the other another thing that's repeated is explain water to the fish, because in two different songs, someone screams the same person's, but that's not Tim screams explain water to the fish. You know, and that's almost the same phrase as explaining colors to the blind. Oh, but it's the, the opposite actually, because the fish are surrounded by water, but they're not aware of it. It's not quite the opposite, but it's it's like a similar idea, but a little bit of a kind of a almost twist on the idea. It's yeah, it's hard to explain exactly what what they are, but they're similar, but they branch out from each other. Right. I just wanted to hit a couple few things that I uh, here's something else that I that I feel like popped up. I, I you mentioned that there's like I wrote small youth narratives is what I said about the songs. I find lyrically they're. I mean, Tim can be really lyrically short sometimes, but I feel like in general, the lyrics on this album are shorter. Yeah, I mean, I looked up some of them and they're like four lines for like a four minute song, you know? I feel like there's a lot of hints about his Italian heritage throughout the album. Like what? Well, um, I, I made points to him, but uh, well, Romulans, Romulans. I mean, technically Romulans is a Star Trek thing, but uh, it's based on like Romulus or whatever. Right. And then then there's the thing about Pompeii isn't, Pompeii isn't technically Italy, right? Or is it technically Italy? Uh, we're showing our ignorance here. I believe it is an island to the south, I believe. I think so. Like kind of down near Sicily and stuff, but I don't want to say, but I think it's in kind of in the Mediterranean. Yeah. But but yeah, but it's definitely in Pamplona, Spain, so that doesn't really fit. Right, but there was a the Roman general, famous Roman general named Pompey too. Right. There's an there's another thing where I feel like those kind of touch on it, and then the other thing is I feel like, and I talk about this on the How Memory Works album, and I think this is kind of how they parallel. I think a lot of these songs are like early stages of love too. Yeah, I'd have to kind of look back at the lyrics a little bit more. Well, we'll get into them as we as we go track by track, but I, I didn't have anything else really I needed to say up top. I don't know if there was some point you felt like I missed. No, um, I feel like we've kind of already bounced around between the tracks, so we should go through them before we end up talking about all of them before we talk about them, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. Well, why don't we take a very brief break and we'll be back for talking about the tracks. All right. back and we're going to start the track by track discussion of Joan of Arc's A Portable Model Love. So let's go ahead and hear a small little sample of I Love a Woman, Parenthetical Who Loves Me. Disgruntled 
start off i'd like to say i think this song is a great introduction to joan of arc like it's a good first song on their first album it's definitely not my favorite song on the album but it doesn't have to be uh to step out and make kind of meta commentary on how albums are arranged for a second i don't think you should necessarily start with your best song but you do want one that's kind of a little bit representative of your sound and i do feel like this song is representative thinking about coming off of Cap'n Jazz to start your first Joan of Arc album with this kind of acoustic guitar part, which is fairly accessible and melodic. And then of course, as usual, his singing undercuts all that. But but the point being that I do think it establishes, okay, we're gonna be different from my other project. Right, and that's the thing is like one of my notes is for for coming coming off of, of Cap'n Jazz, that guitar is so clean on this song. It's very crisp considering how this album was probably recorded. Yeah, you know, I was I was noticing that for all of Joan of Arc's, you know, supposed inaccessibility, um, you know, and they're definitely an acquired taste, most of the difficulty in listening to them is for most people would probably be in his singing style and then all the ambient sounds. It's not gonna be in the actual performance of the instruments or the way they're recorded. The instruments sound really clean and good. And then also when there are songs with like guitar, bass and drums, they're really tight, actually. Yeah, they are really talented. Although, you know, this is Tim didn't play guitar in Captain Jazz. So this is still him learning how to play guitar, which I think to his credit proves that that music is, is an important part of him. Right. But yeah, it's not like listening to as a comparison. It's not like listening to an early pavement album or something where everything's horribly recorded and horribly performed and you either like that or you don't. It's clear that the stuff that sounds rough in Joan of Arc is kind of intentionally designed to sound rough because when you listen to other elements, those elements are really clean. So you would think that if he wanted something that sounded super polished, he could exactly so what do you what do you think the title of this song means you know i just when you brought it up earlier about the use of parentheticals in the the two songs that bookend the album i just started actually thinking about that because i hadn't really considered it i considered that the songs repeat but i hadn't considered the punctuation and i think that that has a a lot to do or that should really guide how we interpret it if you look at the title of the song and remove the parentheses, you have one track, which is called I Love a Woman, track number one that we're talking about right now. And then you have track 13, which is called Who Loves Me, which could you could almost have a question mark there, right? Right. So I don't know if that, that doesn't really say anything about what it means, but it's just kind of a cool double meaning that he was able to get through this use of like alternating parentheticals right it's it's some of his trademark like word and punctuation play yeah i feel like he's always doing that with like you know putting maybe like two letters of a word in parentheses so that it has like a different meaning if you you know uh, things like that or just uh, but in terms of um meaning 
overall I'm, i want to bring up the lyrics yeah i was going to say well, while you're doing that i i really love the lyrics to this song they're very simple and it's i can i can even quote it for you while, while you're looking at them over just for our fans we won't quote everything but this is one that might as well the song lyrics are are a spit into oncoming traffic disgruntled and unshaven egg salad sandwiches what we said we'd talk about what makes humans humans too smart to be a pop star not smart enough not to be that last phrase is obviously one that's repeated in the final track and it's one of those very clever tim kinsella phrases when i think of him as a lyricist i think of him having fairly abstract lyrics but then throwing in one of those really quotable lines you might almost call it like an aphorism it feels almost like one of those like Oscar Wilde or Winston Churchill kind of turns a phrase where you're like, you can quote it just because it's so witty and concise. Right. The first verse is almost just very imagistic and it's very, um, I don't know, I just get a picture of a kind of broken and, and impoverished person, not, not necessarily like literally impoverished, though gas station egg salad sandwiches kind of does imply that to but just this guy wandering around kind of pointlessly almost, you know what I'm saying? And he has anger, obviously, a spit into oncoming traffic, but just like he hasn't showered or anything. He's like unshaven. He's eating this shitty food. Well, yeah, I, one, my notes, one of my notes is I think this song in, in a lot of ways is a, a youthful fuck off to the world. Right. But also I think this is tying into the, the next time we talk, when we talk about how memory works. One of the things I, I say there, and forgive me for repeating myself in the future to the past or however that works, if you're looking at this, as I describe on, on that episode, as a tour diary being seen in the moment in this one and being seen afterwards in that one, this very much feels like a tour song too. Yeah, you know, that's that, that makes a lot of sense because what I was saying about that first stanza is this guy kind of wandering around forlornly i think that that does happen a lot on tour of like you're in a strange city and you're you're hung over or whatever i don't know if he was a drinker or anything but that's not the point like you know you stayed out late the night before playing a show then you get up and you like leave your hotel and you're like dirty and you're like just wandering around this strange town i can definitely see that as part of the kind of narrative such as it is it's not really a narrative but you know uh the kind of implied narrative that 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 first stanza has i don't really know what how to interpret the the second one but what we said we talk about makes humans human yeah well i think that I, I to me that feels like it's a statement of being deep without being deep if that makes sense like yeah we'll just talk about what makes humans humans but yeah i don't i don't know exactly where i'm going with that thought but there, there's an implied deepness without actually having to get deep. Yeah. I wonder, it's just, you know, it's hard to interpret without knowing who the we are. If you knew who we in this context was, it might give a little bit more guidance. You know what I'm saying? Is it like, is it somebody he was dating? Is it somebody, you know, in his band? Is it somebody at the show? Is it like, you know? Right. And that's getting a little too literal and bogging down in the weeds, but you get my point. But I think it's implied that we should think it is a relationship just because of the title of the track. Not that I necessarily feel like you have to hear this song through that lens. Right. But I think that's through the title of the track, it's almost inferred that it would be a relationship. And the funny thing to me is that the title of the song would be kind of optimistic or, you know, at least it would imply that he's in a relationship that's in a good place. Right. 
minus that parenthetical part. Right. But even that is like, it could be like, she loves me back. Right. Right. And it's also playing on um, those kind of like sweet 50 songs that always have the parenthetical. Right. Mm -hmm. But he's obviously playing off kind of the tropes of pop music, which ties into too smart to be a pop star, not smart enough not to be, right? Right. But the title of the track almost seems like he's in a good place in a relationship. But then when you read the lyrics, it really doesn't seem like it. So that's kind of an interesting contrast in itself. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that 100%. Now, do you think too smart to be a pop star line? Do you think that's that's to be taken literal? I, I guess what I'm saying is he doesn't really think he's a pop star. No. If the the narrator of this song is Tim, he doesn't think he's a pop star. So what exactly does he mean by not smart enough not to be? I really don't know. It's just one of those things that sounds super clever. And then you start thinking about it and you're like, like you said, it's clearly not literal. Well, here's here's my thought. And this is even just coming to me as we're discussing. But is the not to be, we're implying a pop star. But is that removed? Right. Is it removed that he's not smart enough to not be? Yeah, you know, I I actually thought of that, but I almost thought it was like too far out there. But at the same time, the fact that you thought of it too, it could very easily be that, you know, there's no like punctuation in the lyrics. They're broken up into, I don't know what the liner notes look like, or if there are liner notes with lyrics. There are. Obviously, I didn't have the CD. So, you know, in, in the in the lyrics written out here that I'm looking up, looking at they're just broken up into lines but there's no like punctuation so there's nothing to guide us in how to actually read it right and it seems like there's weird line breaks right no it's kind of broken up pretty reasonably it's like too smart to be actually this would this would tie into what you were saying but it's like too smart to be line break a pop star line break not smart line break enough line break not to be so you get a lot of different double meanings if the lyrics in the booklet are even remotely punctuated like that. I don't know. That even play. Yeah, I think it is punctuated like that. That even plays with the to be or not to be. Right. Yeah. Too smart to be, not smart enough not to be. Right. If you leave out a pop star. <laughs> exactly. I was also thinking that you can interpret it like by uh, a little bit differently, even by adding like the words to want. So too smart to want to be a pop star not smart enough to not want to be, if that makes any sense, right? So it's like, you you don't want this crash material kind of lowbrow life, but yet you do want it on some level. And that was my original interpretation, actually. I couldn't come up with it when you were asking me later or asking me earlier, but now that uh, we started talking about it a little bit more, I remember I was thinking that last night, maybe he means it that way. Like you're torn between this desire for fame and recognition and this kind of like realization that that's stupid and that the kind of stuff you have to do to get that is not what he wants. Exactly. Because I think this is this is why I said I think this is a great place to start with an introduction to Joan of Arc. Right. And, and I know you said this wasn't one of your favorites on the album. It is actually one of my favorites on the album. But that's just such one of those Kinsella lines where there's so many ways you can read it. Right. It's just so open. But... We're, we're going to end up talking about this song kind of a little bit more later. So maybe we should just play a brief little sample of The Hands.
okay. We got to hear that uh, aforementioned uh, boyoing noise in this song. What, what, what were your thir- first thoughts about the hands? Well, it was for me, it was definitely a little more accessible or catchy than the previous song. And I actually happened to notice that on Spotify, you know, the top of the artist page there, they'll show you the most listened to tracks. And it was one of them. And it doesn't surprise me. And something about that boyoing I call it a bouncy or a slinky sound. It's like if you could, in a cartoon, if a slinky was going down the stairs, that'd be like what it sounds like. Right. But something about that sound and the upbeat tempo of the song just makes it pretty catchy. Yeah, it is. It is surprisingly catchy. The lyrics to this song are actually pretty funny, I think. And they're even they're really short. Like I was saying, a lot of this album, the lyrics are really short. But I think this song is actually really funny lyrically, too. Go ahead and quote them if you want. Oh, yeah, I'll go ahead and quote them. It's all these nights setting Christmas trees on fire, they always end up with somebody crying all these nights, setting the Christmas trees on fire, they always end up. So there's like weird, he breaks it differently every time. Yeah. But he repeats that when he breaks it. And then he, the second half of the song is he's saying, now I've got that stare and I'm ready to die. And then in the lyrics, it's a parenthetical underneath it where the backing vocals come in and say, I just said it, it must be true. Hmm. Which I think is a statement about the music he used to make. It's just like, these songs are about moments of sad times. It doesn't mean I'm always sad. If I said this now, it doesn't mean it's always and forever. Yeah, the line breaks that you're talking about are not quite the same. But see, so what I've got is, ah, these nights setting Christmas trees on fire, they always end, line break, up with somebody crying. I think you might have said that. All these nights setting the Christmas, and that's all part of one line. Trees on fire, they always end up with somebody crying. So you definitely do have that double meaning of they always end, and then the next time it's they always end up with somebody crying. Right. But I think, I don't know how much meaning there is into it. I do think it's, like you were saying at the top, there's some nostalgia to it in this song. Yeah. And it does feel very youthful in a lot of ways. Like you were saying, there is some humor. Um that I just said it, it must be true line is pretty funny because it's definitely meant ironically of like, like you were saying, it's the kind of message to people who are reading into his stuff. Just because I said it, I didn't, doesn't mean I meant it sincerely, but he's saying the opposite. It must be true. Right. But that's definitely an ironic statement. Right. And then what about the explain water to the fish? We've already talked about it a little bit, but in the context of this song, how would you kind of interpret it? Well, I think maybe to me, it's this idea of trying to, how do you, so all these nights, right? They're setting Christmas trees on fire. Uh How do you explain these nights when you're in these nights? Or how do you see the importance of these nights when you're in these nights? Right. That totally makes sense. I was also wondering because, because of the, I just said it, it must be true if the fish were the people listening to the music too. It could be the people having the experience, sure, but it could also be your job as an artist is almost to make the fish, i.e. people, aware of their more aware of their surroundings when normally we just kind of walk around in a daze, right? Yeah, I really like that idea. So it's it, I think it's interpretable both ways. It's like explaining experience to yourself, but also explaining life to others you know what i'm saying yeah yeah i didn't even think about it like that but reading it like that it just totally makes sense to me 
I think based on what, what you were saying at the, uh, talking about this song, I think we'd both agree this is definitely a standout track on the album. There's a reason it's top played on Spotify, right? Or am I wrong? No, I think so too. Um, like if, you know, they, they're not a band who has singles, but if they were to have a single, this would be one of my nominations. It would be between this and a few others we can talk about later. Anyway, I think, you know, we've, we've been talking for a while, so we should probably keep moving through the tracks. Yeah, yeah. So let's go ahead and let's hear track three, Anne Avery. I got to be honest, like, obviously anyone who listens to this show knows that uh, lyrics play a heavy part on me. This is one of the ones I have the hardest times remembering the lyrics to for some reason. I don't want to, like, diss any of the tracks on this album, because in general, I do like the album, but not one of my favorites, to be honest with you. And it could just be that minute and a half section in the middle that's really kind of grating, or I don't know if it's because the sort of bird sounds are so kind of obtrusive there throughout the song. But yeah, I didn't really like it as much as some of the other tracks. I don't know how you feel about it. It's it's not my favorite. But when I look at the lyrics, I actually really like the lyrics. But it's just because it's not one of my favorite songs. They don't stick with me. Right. So yeah, I, I feel like there's nothing there's nothing like wrong with the lyrics. In fact, I think they're really good. But just something about the music I don't feel like conveys them as well as it could but speaking of songs that look back we've got the um hopefully these are the right lyrics does this sound right, right to you tragically average so seventh grade so second rate yeah that's exactly my father was a salesman i'm gonna be a sailor um i think that's an interesting lyric so this all comes from it seems to come from a young perspective like i'm going to be a sailor like he hasn't grown up yet or achieved his life dreams right? right but the way i interpret salesman and sailor are metaphorically his father was kind of a product of the sort of capitalist conformist lifestyle right he's going to be an explorer you know what i'm saying he's going to be somebody out at sea you can almost look at sailor as artist right yeah my father was a salesman i'm going to be an artist and there's a but there's a lot of just stuff that puts me in the perspective of a younger person human boy voice fake id fake id yes so seventh grade so second rate that feeling of being in seventh grade and feeling average and not standing out you know what i mean yeah it says tragically average actually so there you go so jaded sullenness that feels very teenagery so yeah it's an interesting song lyrically i just feel like i didn't necessarily need it to be five and a half minutes right especially that middle part there's something about those sounds in that middle part that really like it's probably the point but they really bothered me i don't know why i i really like the bird chirps and i don't i don't think maybe it's just because i'm conditioned through listening to a lot of joan of arc but something about the bird chirps work for me that it does get in the middle part it does get worse like i understand what you're saying yeah it's not so much it's not so much the bird chirp thing it's that swelling noise right um that almost sounds like some sort of weird like alien space noise you know what i'm saying it's like it's not really of this earth it's not the bird chirps themselves that really 
bother me. You know, and of course it makes sense in the context of the song name. Right. Do you think Anne is anybody in this context or do you think it's simply just a pun like an aviary, like the, the article A-N? right versus a n n e yeah i think i think it is a pun like i can't figure the song is told through the perspective of of an an and it doesn't feel like it's about an an right it feels like it's more about a young male right when and that kind of brings me to this note that people can look forward to when we talk you and i talk about how memory works is i felt like in a way this was a, a weird counterpoint to the song This Life Cumulative off of How Memory Works. Hmm. Let me pull up the lyrics for that one. I'm just curious. I don't even know if lyrically it is. It's almost like, I mean, it kind of is. Something about musically, I think it's the way they use the bird chirps in this song that, and the way they use that like trill or whatever they do in, in This Life Cumulative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see that. There's a little bit of lyrical tie-in. Maybe not so much, but you're dumb teen... Bum teen, cum teen, run teen. This, these, these are the right lyrics, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I just can't trust these sites anymore. Like, there's one where I pulled up the lyrics for a certain song. It's a completely different song. So, <laughs> but that it's that feeling of you know being a teenager and a little bit lost and feeling inadequate or something, trapped in grammar and calendars. All this white bread makes me wonder. Anyway. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just me looking for connections, but I just felt something about it said that this is, and this is one of two songs on this album I felt kind of had a counterpart on how memory works. And I think the other one is a little bit, the other one is the next one. So I don't know, was there anything else you wanted to mention about this one? No, I just kind of, you know, my general impressions are like, if I was ranking the songs on this album, this would not be at the top. No, this, this isn't one of my favorites at all. Well, let's play a little bit of track four, which is... Let's wrestle. I feel like you mentioned this, the lyrics in this song at the top, and I feel like they do a really good job with what they're trying to do, but they're not that impressive to me overall. But something that really draws me into this song, especially the the older I get or the more I've listened to it, I actually really love the instrumentation in this song. It's very sparse. And then there's that moment where it just comes swelling into like, the where the line is, we know we can't quite kiss yet. And the music just kind of forces its way in after being really dwindly and quiet and sparse. I just really love that part. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that jumped out to me musically, and this is more about his singing, was there's a certain melody that he uses a lot, and it comes up in this song. Like when he sings Let's Wrestle, like he loves that, without getting too technical, he loves that particular inter- interval in relation to those particular chords. Again, I don't, I, you know, I don't want to like break it down and be like, he sings the major seventh down to the fifth. I think that's what it is. But the point is, it's a very, I've noticed this about a lot of, I guess it's only natural, but I've noticed this about a lot of singers that they have their kind of little pet melodies 
that they use over and over again. Like there's a very like uh, Jay Robbins melody that he loves to use in Burning Airlines. There's a very like uh, specific Bjork melody that she always uses too. I'm not going to imitate anything because <laughs> it would be horrible, but- uh, That'll be a bonus episode. But I think that that kind of like, you know, all artists have their little obsessions, whether it's turns of phrase or like chord progressions they like or whatever. And, and um, I think that that's one of those things where you're actually- well served to keep using those things because it kind of gives a uniting feel to your to your art right it kind of like gives you a certain sound mm -hmm. that's something i noticed here um the other thing i see what you mean about the lyrics i really like them but they're very much a little bit more standard emo almost yeah like emo lyrics tend to be pretty imagistic and they tend to like, you know, so you've got foggy Pennsylvania, highway sunrise, and they kind of try to invoke this feeling in you, right? Wrestling you, cotton brown Octobers, this August, it's wool. We know we can't quite kiss yet. Let's wrestle. Let's wrestle. I really like that last part. I mean, but it's definitely a little bit more like scenic backdrop to something romantic, right? Question, do you think, do you interpret this also as being from the perspective of like someone young? Why else? I guess there's other reasons you would say, we know we can't quite kiss yet, but that feels like a very young sentiment of like... That's the way it's always felt to me. Like, we're not quite... I mean, even if it's not like they're the first kiss ever, there's just like such youthful anxiety about relationships or whatever. Right. That, that's the way it kind of reads to me. Right. So their feelings have to manifest in some other way, whether it's like playing around or what, you know? Yeah. And so this is this is just where I was going with this a minute ago. But on how memory works, there's a song that is definitely kind of a counterpart to this song. So open, hooray! And a lot of people we even discussed in that episode. A lot of people really love so open, hooray! But I don't think either one of us really liked that much. But I think this is the better version of that song. Right. Yeah. I wish I had had a little bit more time to just like listen to both albums back to back, then listen to the podcast discussing that one. I mean, in a way, his whole, this is what I was trying to kind of say with the singing melodies, but his whole career in Joan of Arc anyway is is connected. So it's almost like, is a portable model more connected to how memory works than it is to other Joan of Arc albums? Well, maybe, but I bet you if we went through and put any two Joan of Arc albums back to back, we could find connections because he's such an album maker and he's got his obsessions and he's got his style, right? And it's not like, there's definitely some musicians who just make tracks and he definitely makes albums, but I almost feel like Joan of Arc itself is a, is a larger project, right? Like Joan of Arc itself is almost trying to say something larger and have a united kind of theme yeah i could see that i mean the theme isn't necessarily musical or stylistic there's something else because you know i'd say their first two to four records kind of sound closer together maybe even just their first three but their first two obviously have a very similar sound and, and they go on and later in their career and do a lot of stuff but obviously there's still like like you're saying there's certain themes but i feel like maybe the 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 credos or something of the band itself is is trying to be represented yeah i guess that's what i mean like it's like a worldview or something maybe it's like if you were to sit there and read 12 kurt vonnegut novels in a row you would see certain things that kept coming up over and over yeah it's not that he wrote them in relation to each other it's not that he said you know oh i want breakfast of champions to tie into this book this way but more just that 
inevitably, if you're like a high kind of concept artist like Tim Kinsella is, you're going to get that kind of overlap. Right. That's getting a little, that's getting a little too abstract. But I, yeah, I think Let's Wrestle is a pretty and slow, uh, it's a slow song, obviously, but I think it's a pretty song in the, the Joan of Arc catalog. Yeah, it's definitely a song that I would describe more as traditionally emo almost than, you know, some of the other songs on this album. And I, I, I like it overall. Um, it didn't make my top four. I have my top four written down, but it's not one that I just like don't like. So right, yeah, no, it's not. It's not a standout for me. But maybe we'll work, move on to the first uh, non-lyrical song on the album, Romulans. Romulans. I pronounced the exclamation points. I hope. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think the idea came across. I hadn't considered the idea that um, that ties into Romulus and Rome and Italy and all that. That's interesting to consider. It's kind of hard to talk about a kind of ambient instrumental song because there's not a lot of that you can talk about it conceptually. What do you think? Why title it Romulans? Like why 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 the sort of Star Trek thing? Well, I think it's the mechanical world that's in in this album. I think that's kind of like a futuristic, not futuristic, but it's a very mechanical noise you know what i'm talking about that sound right yeah yeah um and that's what i was thinking it definitely sounds spacey i guess you know for lack of a better word uh futuristic you said as well um yeah i I don't know i mean this is one of those tracks that i'm okay with in the context of an album because they fill in a section between songs I'm not, at least I'm not necessarily going to go just put this song on by itself. No, no, I wouldn't, I would never be like, oh, I really need to hear Romulans, Romulans. But at the same time, I feel like in between Let's Wrestle and and the next song, it kind of makes sense to have this kind of mood piece kind of shift everything a little bit. Yeah, you know, like, um, I feel like when you're making an album that is conceptual, you can definitely get away more with having these kind of ambient, uh, I would call them almost like bridge tracks, right? Because I don't want to use the word filler because it's not filler, but it's like, it's an interlude almost, I guess would be the best word for it. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't have a lot more to say about it because it's only a minute and 28 seconds and it's really kind of structureless. Well, I will say this is what we said at the top, where I said at the top where they were like playing with the radios and whatever. This is obviously where they're playing with the radios because there's a bunch of voices coming in that are, I I wish I could, you obviously can't make out what the voices are saying. I like was listening, trying to hear, and it's there's effects and stuff done to death where you can't make out what they're saying, but I'd be curious in knowing. Yeah, you know, and that ties into the Star Trek space thing a little bit too, of just like this idea of like transmissions coming through space almost, you know. Have you ever heard that thing about like when you see the static on a TV, it's like basically space debris or whatever. I can't remember the exact thing, but that kind of makes me think of that. Of Or even just... Like if you if you were in a Star Trek like spacecraft and you were trying to communicate with another ship that was really far away, yeah, like might hear kind of scattered voices. Yeah, I mean, again, these are, this is just me constructing kind of like narratives that obviously Tim Kinsella was not necessarily thinking about while he was doing it. He was not like this is a song about 
when Worf you know, right. <laughs> and Captain Picard had a fist fight. I don't know. <laughs> I don't even, I honestly don't even know if Worf and Captain Picard are in the same version of Star Trek. I think so, but. They are, they are. But I, I, okay. I threw in that they had this fight on a, a Romulus ship. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but like the point is like it's fun to sit here and construct your own narratives, but that's not how people write music. It's just something I'm doing for the benefit of a podcast. Right. Well, that's what that's what it's all about. Um, but I tend to do that probably because I write fiction as well, where I inevitably construct some sort of image or narrative or like even mini movie. And I recognize that not everybody does that when they're listening to a song, but. Yeah, well, I think it's good. And that's part of why we're breaking down albums on this, this show in general is just to, because the music is so relative. Everybody breaks it down their own way. But I think we're, we're pretty good with this one. Let's, let's go ahead and play a little bit of post-coitus rock. Joan of Arc song this title feels very on the nose yeah it's definitely interesting I was thinking that too it's it seemed like it's a witty title but it's not Joan of Arc style witty you know what I'm saying and maybe it is that um that on the nose quality it just feels like a little bit more his jokes and stuff tend to be a little stranger whereas this like I can imagine I can even imagine like a kind of more mainstream band having a song with this title. Right. Yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing or anything. And I don't think the song itself doesn't sound like a Joan of Arc song. Cause it certainly is a Joan of Arc song right. musically and lyrically, but yeah, I just felt like for their titles, but I think this song is about a young person understanding or trying to understand sex mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And I think there's just a lot of uh, really great ways that he breaks down the lyrics. There's a line where it's a couple cold, break, hammers, period, a bag, break, of cut hair, period, say, break, fuck a lot, period, shades, break, of Dorian Gray. Yeah, um, obviously that say, line, break, fuck a lot gives you a completely different meaning than if you just wrote it out as sentences, the sentence itself say fuck a lot. It's like, you know, either a command or it's like something that they're doing, right? But fuck a lot is completely different, has a completely different implication. What what do you think? Why is Dorian Gray referenced? I haven't read the novel, but I, I know what it's about. So you got this is it that the picture's aging and he's not? Is that how it works? That, yeah, I, it's been so long since I've read it, but that is, it's it's something like that, if not that exactly. Right. So here's the way I kind of see it. There's two things in that line, which is, again, so I think the gray, it plays on morality. Like relationships, the sexual relationships have some shades of gray. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, shades of gray is a very, very common phrase there. So he's clearly going with that. So it's a little punny. But it's also because we're kind of determining a lot of these songs are sung from the, the thoughts of a, of a younger person. I think it's also like even when you're a teenager, unless you're like the biggest player in the world or whatever, sex seems like an older person act. So I'm wondering if it's like the act of 
sex is making him feel older than he is or the thought of sex and that's kind of why he's playing on it like that yeah that makes sense in the next stanza you have a, a part that i like it's so in like in lost in you so he's not in love right he's in like or he's in lost right yeah in the other person so that's kind of a cool idea well and then it goes on because the line right after that is you like a talking cornfield yeah i i interpret it as like he's lost in that person like you might be in a cornfield and the reason he says a talking cornfield is obviously to personify it right but i don't know that's how i interpret it anyway um and then of course like we were mentioning earlier the playing on explain water to the fish this song has the uh, explain colors to the blind yeah yeah and i wonder who the blind is in this situation you know whether it's him or the other person. Yeah. One thing I want to say about about the music, because I don't have an answer to that question, and maybe we'll circle back, but this is, to me, the template of an early Joan of Arc rock song. Yeah, it's kind of um, a little bit mathy almost, and it has some catchy um, riffs. There's a, there's a, like some really cool moments in the middle. It's hard to describe a riff, so I'm not going to try to, but just let's just say it's in the middle of the song, there's a few moments that are instrumental where he's not singing, where the riff, you know, just sounds kind of like catchier version of like math rock or something. It's it's more like, I don't want to say it's a little bit more owlsy or something, but it kind of has that, like, it's definitely this uh, sort of upbeat riff based vibe that a lot of the other songs on this album don't have, like Let's Wrestle or um, the first track where they're just definitely a little bit more acoustic-y and aimless almost like they're not they're not as rhythmic right i love the the delivery of like the last stanza vocally the every gesture god licking and spit gently the, the way he delivers those lines for me is i love his voice in that part and i think that's a part that some people would have problems with vocally because it's kind of like cracks and splits a little bit right every gesture is it is this punctuated right is it every gesture god comma licking because that's interesting too like by every gesture they're like creating god or invoking god or something right it's kind of this idea of the holiness of i guess sex i don't know i mean when i hear when i read licking and spit gently could groan forever that's very sexual like that's the most sexual part of the song obviously well besides maybe fuck a lot depending on how you take that line right but i do i think there i think there is you know i mean not to say that that part of it but like the looking and thinking about about sex and sexuality i think it, it is saying there's something spiritual about that human connection right in weird ways because you, i mean sex is dirty <laughs> it is it is it's a dirty right. thing but it's there is a spirituality to it and he's clear he's clearly not trying to make it be more than it is though at the same time because that's why you have this like so in like in lost kind of downplays this idea of like two people in love having you know sex for the first time or whatever it's it's so there's that contrast like even though there isn't love there it's still kind of like this big important thing yeah exactly yeah it's a great song i think it's not that hard to interpret like we're saying but there's just a lot of great word choiceage and and formatting choices in it right yeah and like i feel like the title while it is on the nose is appropriate in the sense of there's that feeling of uplift you might have 
after sex or whatever, right? Like, especially if it's with somebody for the first time or something, it's, it's an exciting experience. There's this like feeling of euphoria, I think, that he's trying to invoke a little bit with that title. Yeah. I did, was there something else that you, you wanted to hit on with this song? No. Yeah, we should we should definitely move on. I, I, I wanted to say, though, that zooming out a little bit, I like the second half of the album better. It worked for me more. And this is where I really start to like it. Not that I like hated the first half or anything, but this is roughly the halfway point. And for some reason, I just liked this second half better. There are all, I assume all the rest of your standout tracks are in the second half. Yeah, that there's three more that were standouts for me. The only one in the first half was the hands. That's interesting because the second half of the album has even less lyrics than the first half. Yeah, maybe there's just something I liked a little bit better about the instrument choices or something. I don't know, you know, it may just be completely subjective and not that something was better realized or or anything like that. Well, before we get too far into it, let's let's hear a little sample of Count to a Thousand. Okay, so what I want to say first and foremost about this song, Count to a Thousand, is that I almost put it as a standout track. And there's two reasons I didn't. The first reason is that when I'm coming to Joan of Arc, usually what I'm coming to Joan of Arc for is is Tim's voice, both literal and metaphorical, even when people don't like it. So it's hard for me to put an instrumental as a standout track. The other reason is that I don't think I ever appreciated this song in my younger days. I really think it took till taking notes or, or reorganizing my notes for this recording where I realized how much I actually do love this song. Interesting. For me, it's definitely very long. And do you think the title of it is a reference to the length? I think so. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Just because it feels really drawn out. And yeah, counting to a thousand takes a long time. So there you go. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, it's the longest song on the album. It's like eight minutes and some change. Yeah. But I feel like this song really paints a picture to me if we're going back to the like a band being on tour and what I was saying is about distance. This song really feels about space in between places. Yeah. Well, the title would even make sense in that context. Almost like be patient. We're getting there. We're getting to this new destination, this new place in life, whatever you want to call it. And this is kind of like that space in between. Yeah. I like this song more than Romulans as an instrumental track. It's interesting that you have two instrumentals kind of with post-coitus rock in between them. And that's kind of the midway point of the album where that happens, right? If this was on vinyl, I'm sure it wouldn't break down exactly this way, but you could definitely have it be like divided where you have sort of those three songs like almost post-coitus rock could be like the end of side A or something, you know what I'm saying? And then you start again with an instrumental. So it kind of, it, it, it demarcates this midway point in the album in a kind of cool way. I feel like what's great about it is the way that, that the, the changes and the instruments, they feel like they are rushing in at, at completely unexpected times. Yeah. Which I really appreciate. I can see that. Yeah, it's it's hard to... I don't think we necessarily need to spend a lot of time, even though you clearly like the song, but it's definitely harder to talk about instrumental tracks unless you're going to go 
back and listen to it over and over and over again. You're probably more equipped to talk about an instrumental track than I am because you would have heard it more and you would have noticed stuff like that, like the instruments rushing in, which I haven't, you know, in my memory, having listened to this song, you know, a few times, it's like that was instrumental. It's long. It has some ambient kind of building parts. It kind of, I feel like the tension of the song almost increases as it goes on in a way. But other than that, like, I can't sit here and say, oh, I like when that keyboard enters or something. You know what I'm saying? I can't. But I do feel like what what you're saying is true. Like, especially for that first movement or whatever, there's a whole lot of tension. And then it's almost like the tension breaks when the guitar and the more melodic part starts. Yeah. But then it starts building again as the stuff going on underneath the guitar. Yeah. So my impression of the song when when I'm thinking back on it is the last few minutes it seems like some stuff that was there in the middle i could be wrong here but it seems like some stuff that was there in the middle is kind of dropped away and the song is kind of not fading out but almost in a way i don't know right and i mean i, I it do, it fades away and then another part fades in and then that's the eight minute some change song i don't i don't think we we can really say more it's one of those if people like the uh, the more acoustic guitar parts of this album they're going to appreciate the the second half of this song yeah but let's go ahead and, and listen to track eight how wheeling feels So let's address it right up front. How much does the phone ring irritate you? Not really, for whatever reason. I know that's not consistent, but I just really like this song. So maybe I'm able to overlook that um, because it it is one of the standout tracks for me. It's the other, it's the last standout track for me as well. It's not that, you know, I could probably, if the phone was not there, I'd be fine. But on the other hand, like I like everything else about the track so much that I'm okay with it, I guess. Uh, you know, a lot of people, when they hear this song, they're so irritated by the phone that ring, they can't get past it. And I understand, but I actually really like the phone ring, especially that part where it's like, I don't, I know, I know this isn't how they did it, but where it sounds like it's on a turntable scratched. Yeah. You know, and maybe I just feel it fits this sense of nostalgia that I've been talking about because a phone ring of that type is just an old school sound. You know what I'm saying? And obviously it wasn't at the time, like at the time people just had landlines. So, but having it there in the context of listening to it in 2020, literally 23 years later, definitely just brings you back to a certain moment, I guess. So I agreed, agreed 100%. What what do you think the title is? What do you think the song is? I have some more insight about the title, but I want to know what you think about the meaning of the song and the title and whatever. Wheeling, I don't know. It's interesting. You could almost reverse the letters too, to have like how feeling wheels, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. That just occurred to me and not that it necessarily makes sense, but what do you think like wheeling even is? So here's the thing. And I I don't want to, for the longest time in my mind, when I was just hearing this song in my mind, wheeling was like motoring or so, you know, like moving, just being in, in constant movement. That's what I, I thought for the longest time. And then 
when I moved to Chicago, I learned that Wheeling is a suburb of Chicago. Ah, yeah. So I've, yeah, I've been thinking of it, even though I lived in Chicago, like I didn't pay much attention to what the suburbs were. So that's, that's really interesting because it gives it a completely different meaning, like how being in the suburb of Wheeling feels, right? Yeah. Versus Wheeling to me was like, almost like being out of control, like just a sense of being on a wheel or something. But then you also have like the phrase like wheeling and dealing. And so there's a bunch of different ways you can interpret wheeling. Like, well, I do know for a fact that wheeling is the suburb where, where they are from. Right. So that makes the lyrics have a different meaning too. Like they're almost, the lyrics are almost responding to the title, which is something I always like. So how wheeling feels and then the lyrics at least for the first stanza are kind of answering that question, right? Right. Like Christmas, like a birthday, like like a Christmas day birth, like a Christmas day birth, I guess. Because it's broken up in that weird way, I didn't read it quite properly there, but uh, like Christmas, like a birthday, like a Christmas day birth. Well, we know what a Christmas day birth, I mean, that obviously <laughs> makes me think of Jesus, right? Like, Well, and it's also just like, it's not like the most clever his lines can get but it, there's just certain playfulness to it too yeah like christmas like a birthday it's like a christmas day birth i love the second stanza specifically i love the the everybody knows part right before he launches into this really complex statement like oh everybody knows delicate sin is implicit in any fine sense of aesthetics it would be a much worse lyric it'd still be interesting but it'd be a much worse lyric if you left out that everybody knows right right He's kind of almost undercutting his grandiose, complex statement. Right. I love the transition from the first half of the song to the second half. So the first half is like, it's that that phone ringing and kind of like a rocking out song. And then it repeats the, those lines, the like Christmas part a bunch. And then it just all of a sudden drops to this like, I mean, it's obviously like a keyboard, but it's almost like a bell sound on a keyboard. And it just slows way down for that that second half when he de delivers those lines, everybody knows. Uh, since we're talking about the instrumentation or arrangement on the song, might as well bring up that I really like those background vocalizations. Mm -hmm. It's He's literally just kind of singing woo-ee-o. I don't know how to describe it. Like I don't even know if it's Tim because it sounds a little bit different than his normal vocals, but... I think it might be... I mean, this is just this is just wild speculation based on it, but I think it's him and somebody else. Yeah, I could see that it could be like kind of almost a gang vocal, and they're they're pretty high pitched, and there's no like lyrics to them, and they're just in the background there while he's singing something else. I can't remember what lyric is going over the top of it, but it's it's a pretty catchy little melody there. I like it a lot. If you removed the phone ringing from this song, I feel like it would be so much more accessible. Yeah. And I think it would be maybe the most accessible song on the album if it was for that. Um, I really, I also really like that. Um, is this the song that in my notes, it, it says it is, uh, but uh, is it the one that ends with that almost music box melody? Yeah. It's like just four notes and it just keeps going over and over. Uh -huh. And I love that. And it's going, it's going over and over and there's not much else. And then eventually the bass enters and hits these like low kind of notes that ring out that sound like so they sound very, they're like really beautiful with that music box melody. And it almost gives a whole different sense to that, to that melody. Like I love when a, when you're listening to a song and there's a part playing and has some sort of implied chords and then some other instrument enter, enters behind it. And the chords that you thought that were there are totally different. 
Um, and so that's a little, that's a really cool effect. And I don't want to get too down into the weeds about that either. Like, yeah. So I really just liked the instruments on this song. That's what drew me in. And I really liked how it's like two separate songs more, more so than the lyrics, which I enjoy too, but just something about the arrangement was great. But I feel like, I mean, you say two separate songs, but I definitely feel like it's movements. They're playing off of each. They're like, if you just had that first half or you just had the second half, it wouldn't have the same power at all. No, yeah, you're, you're totally right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's wrong to say it's two separate songs. It's more like the part with the, and I keep calling it a music box, but that's just because it's like the melody sounds like something you would play on a music box, but the actual instrument doesn't sound very much like a music box, but it is a little chimey. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's, was that what you meant by the bells? Yeah. Okay. Um. So yeah, like that might be a better description of it. But to me, that section sounds like an, what you might call like an outro to the, I just did air quotes. I realize you can't see that on a podcast, but what you might call an outro to the, um, to the first section. Yeah. And I've always liked songs that have a kind of almost repetitive outro. And this one definitely does. It's that same four note melody over and over again, but you don't get sick of it because stuff in the background is changing. Yeah. And it's, and it's still like, it's a simple melody, but it's still a really pretty melody. Right. Exactly. And then the instrument whatever that is, that instrument that they're playing it on is a very beautiful instrument too. You know, it's got this really chimey quality. It's almost soothing. Yeah, it, it, when I think that's part of the the play of this song is that because that first part has that telephone that that's grating people, it's just like, well, if you stick through, we're going to give you something very calming and like... Right, and I think a lot of what... I enjoy about albums like this that have their ambient or grating moments is that tension followed by release, right? Where you go into something that's a little bit more accessible or a little easier on the ears, but it doesn't have the same effect if you don't have the other stuff there first. Right. And so I, you know, one, one other thing I wanted to say about how Wheeling feels because it's these juxtapositions of these two movements. I love how the lyrics to the first half, while the music is is more aggressive and and grating, the lyrics are like really upbeat and positive sounding. Right. And then when it gets to that pretty part, the lyrics become, I I think that's a dark statement. Yeah. And even if not, they're definitely darker than the first stanza, which is all kind of like stuff that we associate with positive experiences now whether he means it exactly that way or not i don't know because he mentions christmas and of course that reminds you of the of the lyric in uh, the hands where you have a christmas tree on fire so that's not necessarily the album has already associated christmas with something destructive so it's like does he mean does he mean it positively in this next song or not i don't know yeah and there's no real way to, to pin it down did we miss something? I don't think so. Um, you know, I, I could talk about that song for a while, but it's definitely best to kind of give every song its equal airtime and weight. So I think it's probably good to move on to the next one. So let's go ahead and hear a little bit of In Pompeii.
I can't imagine that anyone in our modern day that would have any kind of knowledge can really think of Pompeii about anything without thinking of volcanoes. Yeah, that's obviously the first thing that came to mind for me. You know, everybody's read the stories and seen the the images of these, you know, stuff frozen in ash, right? Like just these volcanic imprints and people just know that story. And so when you're listening to this song and you're hearing that kind of tribal drumming stuff, you really, to me, I just immediately think of how that fits with volcanoes and how it almost fits with this idea of like human sacrifice or something. I don't know. Yeah. I just get the image in my head of like destruction and like something being thrown into a volcano. And well, it's yeah, though that percussion is so driving you like in a similar way, like this, the, the sounds of the song definitely he leans into knowing that you're supposed to think volcano. That's I think I could be wrong, but you can even just see like footage of volcanoes erupting and lava flowing and just on that rhythm to that, those drums. Yeah. It would fit perfectly. Like that's what I was going to say. If like, if I was to make a movie about Pompeii where the climax was a volcanic eruption, you could absolutely put this song behind it while people are like fleeing and you you obviously have to have a more extended version because it's a very short song but definitely one of those songs where the music and the title are perfectly married and they do tell a story other songs i feel like i'm definitely reaching for the story um but in this case i feel like it's pretty much there on the surface right and then what's kind of like we talked about at the very top of this this song totally ties into these these ideas of Italian heritage. Yeah. Even if Pompeii isn't technically in Italy, it's damn close. Right. I mean, I mean it was part of the Roman Empire. I'm going to look up Pompeii. <laughs> I'm going to we'll get some facts on. Yeah, no, it's southern Italy. Um, so when I said that earlier that I thought it was like an island off the coast is a vast archaeological site in southern Italy's Campania region near the coast of the Bay of Naples. I can't tell if it's part of the Italian landmass or not. No, it's 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 like right there on the coast. I was I was gonna correct myself earlier almost because I started doubting. I was like, I don't think it's um I don't think it's an island, but yeah, it's right near Naples in the Mediterranean there. At this point, I don't think it's a place where people actually live. I think it's just kind of a historical site. Right. Anyway, so there's our little bit of trivia for listeners who probably already knew that. What else did you, do you have to say about this song? Nothing really. I think we should go ahead and, and hear some of uh, Caliban. have a lot of notes on this song but very few of them are actually about the song i think it's i think you really need to look at this song and the one before and the one after as like a trio almost does that make sense yeah because obviously in pompeii and in pamplona have a very similar sound and use a lot of the same a lot of the same music but there's some small variations but caliban has a, a sound that's kind of reminiscent of those two it kind of has a tribal quality to me as well and maybe i'm just thinking that because of the title um did you ever did you ever read the tempest uh, i had a note about it yeah yeah so obviously caliban is the sort of like stereotypically 
savage character, if I remember correctly, in The Tempest, right, that they meet on the island. Mm -hmm. And so when you're looking at Pompeii and you're thinking about a volcanic eruption, then you're thinking about whatever the name of the island is in The Tempest, I can't remember. But um, there's definitely this tie in there of this kind of like savage, uncontrolled, a tempest and a volcano or like, you know what I'm saying? You can see where the relationship is there this like savagery of nature almost. So maybe I went out too far down that road instead of thinking about Caliban himself and what it might mean to title the song that. But to me, this song is almost like his song, Caliban's song. You know what I'm saying? I can definitely see this, but here's something else that's interesting. And uh, this is something I didn't remember, but I, I found while kind of trying to understand the song better. Oscar Wilde actually references Caliban in the in the preface to Picture of Dorian Gray. Interesting. Um, so then it comes back and ties into post-coitus rock. Yeah, did he, um, do you know what he said? I do not know for sure. I wish I had that quote. I had the foresight to look up that quote. But well, maybe if you want to uh, take a minute to look it up, this is I'll give this little fact and then we can we can talk about if if you can find it. But the the thing is is there's some question about where Caliban comes from in general. So the the word itself or the name, people think it may come from the Spanish word for cannibal. It may come from the Romani word for blackness. It's close to an Arabic word for vile dog, and it's close to a German word for codfish. Okay, so it was pretty racist, is what you're saying. Maybe, yeah. No, not not not, not from Joan of Arc's perspective, obviously. Right, but, right. From Shakespeare. Yeah, but you know, again, they definitely had their ideas about Christian society versus savages and all that, and he was still very much of his time, even though he was innovative in a lot of ways with stuff like that like he has a moorish character in othello but he still kind of definitely looks down on the other so to speak right this quote from a picture of dorian gray is the 19th century dislike of romanticism is the rage of caliban not seeing his own face in a glass i don't understand what that means at all first of all romanticism is very 19th century so i didn't know that there was this active push against romanticism. And I don't understand the second part of the phrase, but it's interesting to, you know, it's one of those things I'd want to read a like an interpretation of that phrase, and maybe it would make it click for me. But it's interesting to think about the connection there between the two songs and how that that quote helps bridge them. And whether Tim Kinsella was reading Dorian Gray while he was making this out. Well, that's interesting because if, if it comes from Spanish for cannibal, does that quote hint at vampirism? Yeah, I don't know. Be because, you know, that's one of the things of vampire lore. They can't see their reflection. Yeah, yeah. So that, that ties in with the, the Spanish for cannibal. Yeah, and I wonder if there's something in The Tempest, a scene I'm not remembering where Caliban doesn't see his face in a mirror or something, you know, I don't know. So it's one of those things where I'd want to, before making any kind of real theoretical claim about it, I'd literally have to read all of the Tempest again and read the intro to a picture of Dorian Gray. So I don't know. Um, at this point, it's very speculative. I like this song a lot too, by the way. Um, Was it a standout or just, just a lot? I think it is, but it was like a little bit lesser. I wrote The Hands, Post-Coitus Rock, and How Wheeling Feels first. And then I wrote, I added that one in as a little bit of an afterthought. I just like the the instrumentation on it. Yeah. I, I, I It's hard for me to think about the instrumentation just because, like you were saying, it's nestled in between the in Pompeii and in Pompolona. So I just, 
those three songs definitely just kind of feel really together like you were saying yeah like if you if you did it as or if he had listed them as like parts one two and three of something right whatever he wanted to call it it wouldn't have seemed crazy no not at all well let's actually we can we can talk about this and the next one let's play just a very quick sample of the 11th track in pamplona As we were saying these these three songs flow in and out of each other and you can't help just like pompeii conjures the image of the volcanoes pamplona conjures the image of running of the bulls yeah i mean that was the first thing i was going to bring up and i wonder if that's what he was going for and he probably was and it's interesting how you can use the same rhythmic drumming in both songs but it has a completely different connotation if you just change the title to me, in this one, I hear and I imagine it as like a stampede versus imagining the volcano and the destruction of that before, you know? Right. So it works for both of them really well. I think it works a little bit better for in Pompeii for me, but it, it could totally be like we were saying, if you were going to make a little short movie of something, you could totally do the same thing with the running of the bulls and have this song behind it. Right. Well, both things are are destructive and maybe it's just because of the title itself you think of a volcano as as a force of destruction now i don't want to go running with the bulls or i don't know anyone that really well maybe i do know some people that do but the idea behind the running of the bulls is it's more of a like life affirmation yeah so even the the music even just titling it this that gives it more of a a positive feeling even though it's so similar yeah i mean I have no desire to do it either, but I know somebody who does it regularly and he's even been gored and he still does it. It's like this adrenaline junkie thing. He actually lives in Chicago and is a, is a good writer, but I think it's just this, like you say, life affirming. We can debate whether, you know, it's cruel to the animals or anything like that, but it's definitely one of these things where you're putting yourself in the way of danger to almost affirm the fact that you're alive, just like if you were skydiving or whatever, right? Right. Uh, rock climbing, um, anything that's kind of dangerous and physical. Yeah. But again, bo both uh, in Pamplona and Pompeii, they're very short. They're really mood pieces, which work really well in this album. And it touches on the idea of traveling space and time. Yeah, that's what I was saying earlier. Um, I keep finding more and more stuff as I'm going through the lyrics that indicate this idea of travel and that's why I, I i mentioned at the top that i kind of saw a portable model of as like almost like a guidebook too right you could call it that too right you know whether it's caliban being in this sort of tempest like location some sort of you know mystical island somewhere or it's how wheeling feels which i didn't know until you told me that it was this suburb of chicago but it's it may be home for them originally but it's still it still invokes this 
feeling of moving from place to place right after wheeling you have pompeii so you have this big jump right you know what i'm saying anyway and then at the same time that those play off of each other because and i don't think i don't think he expects everybody to know wheeling is a suburb of chicago right like i don't think it's titled to be like hey this is where i'm from but it's kind of great because you have this i'm from wheeling and then my family is from italy right back to back right and then after looking ahead after those you have a song called i was born you want to go ahead and, and pause here and, and play just a little bit of track 12 i was born yep the lyrics necessarily invoke his origins but in the context of those other songs the song title definitely does sorry I, I keep pausing to bring up uh lyrics every time now i'm not getting much luck with i was born <laughs> you should have them memorized by now because they're so long oh yeah right it's like reading the raven it's one it's one, it's one lyric that's that's what it is it's just like the the epitome of brevity and the line is there's never enough of the things you want yeah, I, li I like this one too, just because because of that lyric. It's simple and easy to understand. And the juxtaposition between that and the title, I was born, is funny. It's like, you know, I was born and I've been dissatisfied ever since, right? <laughs> right, yeah. I, the music to I was born, I really like. I like the kind of build up and cluttering and everything until that one line. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to remember how he delivers that line. Um, you've heard, you've heard the song a lot more than I have. So, how would you describe? It's kind of like you know, in in the the lyrics, the, there's no line break, and it just kind of feels like it, everything kind of fades out in the music, and it's just like not flat. He's not saying it, but it's just. I mean, I don't want to try to sing it, but it's like there's never enough of all the things you want. So it's like a little bit, it's like a two note melody then kind of, and it's almost a little bit monotone, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I can see how that lyric and this song title would really tie into the concept of the album almost of just like this youthful perspective, trying to figure out what you want in life, I guess. Right. And then of course the title of the album could be almost like a guidebook. Or it could be almost like you're young and trying to figure out what you want in life. And here's a model of that, if that makes sense. Like here's a, not a guide for how to figure that out, but a roadmap or something. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I kind of see where you're saying. It almost feels like one of my least favorite like expressions is you can't have your cake, but it almost feels like that's kind of the idea of this song in a, in a way. And it kind of connects to the whole album in a way. There's like, simultaneously this want to travel this want to be out there this want to be a pop star <laughs> and then yet you're pulling it back and being like but here's where i'm from here's home here's how distant all this stuff can feel at times yeah which i guess looking at that theme the lyric that book ends the album becomes 
very appropriate. Obviously, I'm referring to the too too smart to be a pop star lyric. Well, let's go. I mean, is there something else we wanted to touch on on "I Was Born"? It's such a short song. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's there's not much to say. It's a it's a minute eight. It's shorter even than the completely ambient instrumental Romulans. So it's like. I have Spotify open, so why I know this stuff, but it's, uh, yeah, it's the shortest track on the album. I mean, it feels short, but it goes in and delivers exactly what it needs to and gets out. Right, yeah, I, I mean, it definitely is more of a song to me than Romulan's is, despite Romulan's being slightly longer, yeah. Well, let's go ahead and talk about track 13, Parenthetical, I Love a Woman, and Parenthetical, Who Loves Me. talked about it at the top but i really i still find it really interesting how the first song the the inverse of this or however you want to look at it it's really interesting to me how the lyrics are longer but the song itself is shorter while the lyrics are so short to this version and the music kind of just keeps going on and on yeah i think that makes sense for structuring an album you definitely would want if you have two versions of a song you'd want to lead with the one with more lyrics whereas when you're kind of leaving an album, it's okay to be a little bit more instrumental, I guess. I'm trying to see if I can find, no, it's just when I look for the lyrics for this last track, it only shows me the lyrics for the first track. So how do they, like, what part does... It's it's literally just too smart to be a pop star, not smart enough not to be. That's what I thought. And that's the most memorable lyric from the first song. And it comes in like immediately. It just hits you with that and then goes to the music. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is totally different from the first track where it starts with that acoustic guitar. It takes a little bit for the lyrics to come in. To me, that is the most important lyric on this album. And it ties into what you were saying about the themes of the album of wanting something, but being kind of drawn back into the past or, you know, I I forget how you expressed it, but when we were just talking about the last track, you summed it up nicely. And it kind of made me think that your summary of the theme of the album is almost all of it's encapsulated in this one lyric. Yeah, right. It's hard for me to restate how I said it without having written it down or something, but it's there. there's a contradiction and there's being aware of this contradiction and it's this want and this, this where I've been, where I'm going, and who knows the difference between the two. Yeah, there, it's like there's never enough of the things you want, but do you even really want those things? You almost have a second lyric after after there's never enough of the things you want in i was born and that's what that's how i interpret too smart to be a pop star not smart enough not to be right it's like this conflict not knowing what you want wanting something that you know you shouldn't want i guess right and you know i think because the music is a bigger focus here than it is in in the first track in the first version I think you really get to appreciate how how pretty that song is. And the the music is a little bit different. It's the same chords and stuff, but there's definitely more of a, a sparse feel when you start the album with this. Yeah. But this is a little bit more fleshed out. Yeah, it's a little lush almost. There's more, especially after he sings the lyric, there's more going on in the background of the song. There's more like texture behind it, you know, whereas the first one is really just like, 
acoustic guitar and a little sound effect and a few other things, but not much, you know? Yeah. But at this point, we're just kind of talking about the whatever we're summing up the whole album, really. And I, I love the way this I wouldn't say this is my favorite Joan of Arc album, but I love the way that this is the introduction the world had to Joan of Arc at the time when he was already in like a semi celebrated emo band to just be like, I can do other things and I don't even know exactly what those things are going to be, but I'm going to try. Yeah. You know, I think it's a pretty realized debut like a lot of bands when they have a debut album it'll sound completely different than what they end up doing later and not to say that Joan of Arc didn't change but the blueprint for their music is there it's not like it's not like listening to like Pablo Honey by Radiohead and being like this has a few creative elements but it's kind of a pop out right and then then what they were later right it's it's not like that like Joan of Arc he clearly already knew the kind of thing he wanted to do going in. Now, I happen to think he realized it a little bit more on how memory works, but it's still impressive that he was able to access this Joan of Arc sound as soon as the first track on the first album. You know? Right. And it's, you know, I think the other, the other thing to say is how many people's first album would you say is a definite album i agree because what usually happens is as a band you get together you start jamming you make up some stuff or you have like a main songwriter and he brings in a lot of things but it's usually not working towards making a cohesive album it's just like okay we've got 10 songs we should probably put out something so we can officially be a band 10 songs is enough for an album let's do it right it's not like coming in with a kind of vision behind it right and like i was saying the 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 blueprint for what joan of arc is is in this album even if it's not your favorite joan of arc album you know and i know it's not my favorite because i've listened to other ones i like better but i i can't i can't rank them probably like you could because so earlier i brought up how tim ranked his albums and this is just a preview for a conversation we've already recorded this is what i found really interesting I was trying to figure out my top five favorite Joan of Arc records, and it was kind of hard. I got to six, and I was like, I can't figure out where these six go. But A Portable Model of is not on my top six. However, How Memory Works is definitely on my top six. Like, I really think How Memory Works is a phenomenal album. But in Tim's ranking of Joan of Arc albums, Portable Model of is number five. How Memory Works is number eight. You know, maybe I think a lot of times when artists rank their own work, so much of the feeling they had when they were making it is tied in and it's inseparable. At least I know for me, if I really enjoyed producing something, I'll always look on it fondly. And since it was his first Joan of Arc album, that probably has something to do with it, that initial excitement and freedom versus doing a second album, you have that kind of pressure to follow it up and stuff. So just a theory. Right. And well, one of the, one of the couple things he said in this thing was, uh, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it on how memory works, where you don't have as much of a knowledge of a portable model of, and I already talked how my interpretation of, is there like a look at the same tour or something, but from a place closer to it and a place further from it I was asked, Tim said, they, these were supposed to be companion pieces. They were a thing in the thing, you know, in the liner notes. And he's like, well, in the first record, it had a funny thing in the liner notes that says, you're not mistaken. This is a concept record or something like that. And he's like, that was a joke that just didn't land. And he is like, and people were like, oh my God, they're so pretentious. But the, he was saying that when they, they first released some seven inches, people were just so confused with what it was. And they were like really 
digging into what 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 is the meaning of this because like we said he was in, in a, a punk emo band and people are like well, why is he doing this what's going on to his exact thoughts or the way he looks at it now maybe even is that there is no meaning the meaning is the thing itself right which i think that works too as a portable model of and how memory works tying those two together mm-hmm. but he does say he does say that they were he does feel like how memory works is more polished than a portable model of and just for uh here i'm going to read this one other thing about the from this thing of comparing a portable model of and how memory works just to get people excited to hear the how memory works discussion but the the interviewer asks this record does feel a bit more about how memory works this record does feel a bit more celebratory and pop oriented but it's not a huge departure from a portable model of and tim's response is i think a portable model of is probably sloppier but it was a similar thing where an acoustic guitar and homemade electronics were enough for certain moments I think everyone else had gotten better at their instruments and we had a better sense of what the vision for the band was. But at the same time, Eric Bosek, the bass player, was losing his patience with it. So that was the difference, that sort of tension. Where the first record had this shared tension of, what's it going to be? Ah, cool. Except for him who was like, wait, this is what it's going to be? Yeah, so maybe maybe that did color his relationship to the albums, right? If somebody's there and not having a good time, then that's going to affect how you look back on the album. But I agree with everything he said about it being more polished and the, the interviewer's question too, um, about it being a little more pop oriented. And I, I, I just feel like it, what I like about how, how memory works is it's still very, very experimental, but it bridges that gap just a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. For sure. Well, is, is there anything else you wanted to say about the album? No, I mean, I, I enjoyed talking about it. And one of those things where I wish I had been able to listen to it like 50 times because then I could have gotten more in the weeds with you about certain songs. We, we talked plenty, but, you know, it's, I still feel like we were almost on a kind of surface level at some points, whereas an album that's this sort of cohesive and has this many strange textures and stuff, you could dig into it a lot more. Yeah, and you definitely could. And and I, I also, I've said it before and I'll say it again, but I also think that's kind of one of the beauties of of tim's writing is you and i could have this conversation today or we could have had this conversation two years from now and it could have been a totally different conversation not entirely different but we would have different thoughts or different ideas based on how we where we were when hearing it yeah and i think that that's one of the benefits of um i don't always like more abstract music or music with lyrics that are a little more opaque but one of the benefits of those kind of lyrics is it allows for a lot of different interpretations. Right. And I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think very many people do it like him anyways. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, it'd be hard for me to think of a band that does, most lyricists I like, they have a little opaqueness to their lyrics, but not necessarily to the same degree. Like you can definitely listen to a Blake Schwarzenbach song and like some of them are just about one thing and that's what they're about. And there's no wiggle room for that when i listen to sweet avenue i'm like that's about the start of a relationship yeah that's what it's about right and nobody could argue that they'd be they'd be taking a ridiculous position if they argued that but there's no ridiculous position when you're reading tim kinsella's lyrics like if somebody said i think this song means exactly the opposite of what you think it means if they put a good case on the table i'd be like okay right yeah why not yeah exactly so i appreciate that sort of opaqueness is not the right word it's more ambiguity is the word i'm looking for openness it's there there's an openness to it and it reminds it reminds you that like you don't have to have answers in your in your art 
or in your lyrics, you know, sometimes creating a mystery or an ambiguity is enough. Yeah. And leaving, leaving people room to feel and experience things the way they feel and experience them. Right. And that's, that's something that I want to remember for stuff I write too. It's just because sometimes I try to overdetermine it. Right. I, I think this is a good place to close. Yep. Thank you so much for talking about this album with me. Listeners will be able to hear us talk about how memory works before too long. And we, we've got an episode, another episode recorded. I don't know when it will be released, but I know we're going to have more. So thanks so much for being here today. And with that, we've come to a close on another album discussion. Next episode, we will be discussing the Elliott Smith album, Either Or. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for this podcast, you can follow us on Twitter at Ears underscore New, or Facebook at New Ears Podcast, or you can send us an email at AbandonedMascotProd at gmail.com. Hope you enjoyed, and thank you for listening. is an abandoned mascot production and part of the abandoned mascot network a loose affiliation of podcasts for media arts creators and connoisseurs for more information follow us on twitter at abandoned masco one that's abandoned m-a-s-c-o and the number one thanks for listening